Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 117, the week ending August 28, 2018, The Significant Memory Issues. First, a word about our sponsors, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, Jay and I take a look at some of the week's top ethics and compliance stories. We start with the uh, three-game suspension of OSU head coach Urban Meyer. We consider yet another guilty plea in the Petavesa con- corruption case, this one around uh, facilitation of money laundering. We ask, should sports officials have a code of conduct? We consider Mike Volkoff's look at Cepheus and uh, how that is expanding its authority. The former head of the Brazilian soccer Governance uh, body is sentenced to four years in jail for his role in the thief of bribery scandal. Francine McKenna takes a look at the paper trail of Michael Cohen and his illegal payment to Stormy Daniels, at least illegal as a campaign contribution. We consider uh, a question posed by Matt Kelly, which is how did the tipping point in personal misconduct in the corporate world actually tip? We explore how a no-deal Brexit could be a disaster for compliance. We consider uh, Valerie Charles' move from the CCO seat to uh, GAN Integrity as their strategic uh, officer. We take a look at uh, Matt Kelly's blog post, Considering Compliance on Television, and contrast it with my view of film noir as informing better compliance. We wrap up with our top five film noirs of all time in a really fun exercise. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, along with Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. We are here for This Week in FCPA, episode 117, for the week ending August 24th, 2018, the significant memory uh losses or addition. So Jay has now returned from his Alaskan cruise with the Disney cruise with the fam. And as Ohio state has suspended its head coach and added a new phrase to our compliance and ethics lexicon of significant memory issues, we are going to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It looks like uh, the FCPA and ethics and compliance world did not stop while I was on the cruise ship. So we have a a jam-packed agenda for today. And uh, the first thing is the aforementioned uh, issue on Ohio State's coach, Urban Meyer. Uh, Which part of that do you want to dive into? So there's just a ton and a half here, Jay. For those who may not know the story, uh, earlier this summer, an uh, assistant coach was fired uh, uh, around allegations of 
uh, assault on his uh, now uh, separated uh, wife and stalking issues. Uh, the question was whether um, there didn't been any prior conduct. Of course, it turns out there was. Uh, this assistant coach had followed Meyer from Florida. Uh, he'd been with him at Florida, followed him to Ohio State. Uh, Meyer was aware of prior conduct, at least two instances of reported conduct in 2009 and 2013. And um, at a press conference in July, uh, Meyer outright lied about uh, this prior knowledge. And so after he was terminated, uh, the Ohio State University Board of Regents engaged a law firm to do an investigation to see what Meyer knew, whether he reported it, and those types of issues. Uh, the board report was just uh, as damning as it could have been towards Meyer, stating in part, we learned during the investigation that Coach Meyer has sometimes had significant memory issues in other situations where he had prior knowledge, prior extensive knowledge of events. He has also periodically taken medicine that can negatively impair his memory, concentration, and focus, end quote. So it uh, looks like we have a new uh, defense. Uh, I wonder if it's going to make it to the FCPA of um, significant memory issues. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the report uh, noted that he was aware of these. It was really unclear from the report the level of his um, reporting to the Ohio State uh, athletic director. Um, he was suspended for three games. Uh, all in all, you can only say it was a pretty gutless response by the Ohio State board. Uh, Meyer gave a press conference where um, he was basically unrepentant and said he hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, we've got notes uh, in our show notes linked to some of the commentary from sporting sites, the Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and The Ringer. And once again, the uh, after having uh, sustained the death of a uh, college football player at the University of Maryland, uh, we now have uh, this, uh, just the, the cesspool of corruption at the uh, college sporting level never ceases to end. The NCAA, of course, has uh, had its collective thumbs uh, in its mouth and has made no comments where they uh, have moved to suspend 12 players from uh, the University of North Carolina for uh, horror and just the horror of selling their uh, Nike shoes um, online. Uh, but uh, yet nothing around this, nothing around the death of player at Maryland. And so uh, we go off on our merry way with uh, the college football season starting Saturday, Jay. I'm thrilled to announce that. I'm sure you are uh, as well, although I think you're a much more well-known uh, professional football fan. So uh, uh, I think this most of this went down when you were uh, uh, unplugged and unavailable yet with the fam. So uh, kind of any general thoughts from uh, what you've seen since then? Uh, it just... Uh once again, seems like a way how not to do these things. And it's like, you know, you, you had Michigan State, you've had the, uh, so you've had the uh, Michigan State issue, you've had the uh, issues earlier in the year with professional basketball, rather with uh, uh, college basketball coaches. And it just seems that uh, lying does not get you anywhere. Uh, ignoring the problem doesn't get you anywhere. And uh, it doesn't really look like, uh, you know, Urban Meyer is getting treated like anyone else. It, it appears, uh, I think, n numerous people in these articles from ESPN and um, Sports Illustrated said that, you know, if you won the first uh, 
you know, uh, playoff in the uh, modern college era, uh, I guess, uh, not informing upon, about domestic abuse in your assistant is only worth a three-game suspension. And as if you recall, my uh, former quarterback hero, Tom Brady, he got four for what he did. So uh, I don't know if there's any uh, if there's any justice there at all. Well, clearly, uh, as we saw with the Astros, if you have a cannon right arm, a zero tolerance policy has a certain flexibility in it for uh, domestic abuse or at least allegations of domestic abuse. Uh, Urban Meyer, um, obviously, uh, having won a national championship at uh, um, Ohio State and having won one at Florida, uh, I think won a couple at Florida as well. Um, there's a certain amount of uh, flexibility there, but heaven forbid that you would decrease the air pressure in footballs during a football game. Uh, no, can't have that. Can't have that. You're absolutely right. Uh, equipment issue, you know, that that is close to a uh, uh, executable uh, offense. So, uh, yeah, great analogy. So uh, next up, we have a story coming to us from um, Sam Rubenfeld at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report. And also Harry Kasson picked it up on the um, FCPA blog. And um, a former Julius Baer Group Limited executive pleaded guilty in federal court in Florida for his role in a sophisticated scheme to launder one2 Billion with a B embezzled from Venezuelan state-owned oil for, firm, which we call Petavesa. Uh, Matthias Kroll, a German national who lived in Panama, pleaded. So uh, this case actually began back in 2014 with a currency exchange scheme that was designed to embezzle about 600 million from Petavesa. Prosecutor said, and within five months, the amount had involved in the scheme had doubled in size. Uh, and basically, Venezuela's state of social, political, and economic crisis leads to a thriving environment of corruption that drives rivers of criminal proceeds through South Florida, prosecutors said in the criminal complaint that was filed as part of the money laundering case. So that's uh, another one. This one's been going on for a while, Tom. Anything to add on it? You know, this is just a... Uh, uh, um the case that never ends. Uh, the corruption at Petavesa is so pervasive. Uh, obviously, we've seen several individuals in the United States, U.S. citizens, uh, indicted and uh, pled guilty. We've had uh, um, companies uh, that done business with Petavesa, gotten into FCPA trouble. And uh, whenever you pay a bribe, though, Jay, you have to have uh, money laundering. And that means you have to have an individual the money's paid to, and you have to have people who facilitate that. And uh, Matthias Krul, um, was one of those people who facilitated this. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, $1.2 billion is, is really still real money anymore. Nevertheless, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty high, you know, like a billion back in the 90s, that was real money. Uh, you know, $1.2 billion now. But uh, they are just, they've just looted this, looted the company, they've looted the country. And it's uh, with all the other problems that they have, um, you can see why uh, it is sliding down into, if not near, total anarchy. But um, it was good to see that some of the facilitators of the money laundering would also be uh, brought to justice. So next up, continuing with our um, sports theme, 
we have an article called uh, Improving Code of Conduct is a Good Start for Sports Officiating. What's that about? So uh, I found this to be an interesting uh, article by David Dodge over on the F, uh, writing on the FCPA blog. And frankly, it would have surprised me that there's not a code of conduct for officiating, but it, there, there isn't. Uh, it's certainly a, a, a good place for one. Obviously, the NBA has had their own problems with officiating with Tim Donahue, uh, having spent uh, over a year in prison for his crimes related to gambling while he was a professional referee. So if you don't have a code of conduct uh, for your sports, it's certainly something uh, that you should look at. Um, Finally, we have some commentary about uh, what I would call CFIUS, um, which is the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States. Mike Volkoff wrote an interesting and I thought uh, well well needed uh, two-part um, blog post series on uh, CFIUS. Uh, and the first part, he talked about sort of the risks involved in a cross-border M&A deal, whether uh, where it's a foreign company trying to buy a U.S. company. Probably the one of the larger ones that people may recognize is Qualcomm Broadcom, which was rejected, uh, but also the uh, Attempted purchase by um, uh, Ant Financial of uh, MoneyGram was uh, blocked as well. But in part two, he went on to uh, detail the new law. Uh, Congress enacted the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act. Man, that's a mouthful. Of 2018, FIRRMA, FIRMA, which is intended to um, modernize and strengthen the CFIUS process. And it expanded the jurisdiction to four types of uh, transactions, a non-passive investment by foreign company, foreign person in the U.S. business involving critical infrastructure or production of critical technologies or maintain sensitive personal data, a change in a foreign investor's rights regarding such U.S. business, any transaction transfer agreement or arrangement designed to circumvent the CFIUS process, and finally, a purchase lease or a concession near a military base or a sensitive national security facility. So greatly expanded the rights. And this is, I think, something that uh, will be near and dear to your heart and should be near and dear to the heart of uh, affiliated monitors. FIRMA requires CFIUS to formulate and adhere to a compliance plan for any mitigation agreement so that such agreements include specific requirements and authorize the CFIUS to impose penalties and violations of the agreement. That seems to me to be screaming out, Jay, for uh, an independent integrity monitor. So uh, this may be something that uh, uh, CFIUS uh, really needs to look into. They certainly need to be able to monitor these uh, transactions they approve on an ongoing basis. But this has become more prevalent under the Trump administration and will uh, continue to be so going forward. So we link to it in the show notes. Take a look at it. Uh, Mike wrote a great couple of blog posts on it. Um, you know, our good friends at FIFA are back in the news. You want to tell us about that? Sure. So it, it looks like uh, this week I get all the uh, the Perp Walk articles. Uh, oh, you're the former- sports guy. Come on. I'm a sports guy. The former head of Brazilian soccer was sentenced Wednesday to four years in prison by a U.S. judge after he was convicted of racketeering and money laundering charges in the ongoing global probe into uh, FIFA. 
Jose Maria Marian, who led the Brazilian Soccer Federation and was a representative to the Continental Confederation's governing body, took millions in bribes in exchange for the media and marketing rights to several soccer teams. In addition to the prison term, he was ordered to forfeit $3.3 million in bribe receipts and fined another $1.2 million. And uh, Richard Donahue, U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, said, for all their power and prestige, the soccer officials who corrupted the beautiful game are not above the law. So this has been going on at least uh, since uh, he was arrested in May 2015 in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, during a raid of FIFA at a posh hotel. And the U.S. investigation of FIFA has led to dozens of guilty pleas and forfeiture of hundreds of millions of dollars. Some defendants remain at large, but the sprawling probe has ensnared soccer officials businessmen and companies who prosecutors say corrupted the business of sports for generations. So uh, talking about a gift that keeps on giving, I think uh, FIFA falls into that category as well. And uh, we've linked to the article from uh, Sam Rubenfeld at the Wall Street Journal. So Jay, we had an interesting take on the Michael Cohen uh, guilty plea uh, earlier this week by Francine McKenna, who writes at Market Watch, which is a Wall Street Journal online publication. Um, she took a look at it from the paper trail perspective. And what I thought was really interesting, and that's that's the biggest problem probably the Trump organization has uh, for the following reasons. Uh, everyone, of course, is aware of the hush money paid by um, Cohen on behalf of Trump to Stormy Daniels of 130000 but that 130000 turned into a $420,000 payment from the Trump organization back to Cohen. It got to 420000 for the following reason. Um, Cohen wanted to uh, take home 180000 So to do that, they had to gross up the invoice he sent to the Trump organization. And in New York, uh, that meant about a 50% tax. So they had to gross it up to um, 360, so that he take home 180. Uh, the 180 came from the 130. Uh, he paid Stormy Daniels on behalf of the president, plus a $50,000 bonus, uh, which he called uh, for tech services. But it was really, um, uh, it was work related to a technological company in connection for work they did for the Trump campaign. So that's what we got to 180. They doubled at the 360, and somehow or another, the Trump organization added a bonus of 60,000. So that's how we got to 420,000. Uh, then uh, Cohen sent an uh, invoice uh, to be payable uh, over a 10 month period. And the um, invoice uh, was posted by the Trump organization to legal expenses with the notation retainer for work in months of January and February of 2017. So the whole paper trail stank as bad as the whole transaction, uh, but that's uh, a real key point, Jay, under the FCPA, under the uh, accounting provisions and books and records, is that you have to have accurate books and records, and clearly that was not done here. The fallout for the Trump organization can uh, only increase. Obviously, uh, Cohen's going to sing like a canary, and uh, we'll just have to keep our eye on this story and see where it goes. If the tax laws were good enough to ensnare Al Capone, 
they should be good enough for the man at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, and everyone else. So, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm having a little uh, technical difficulty on my side. I just wanted to make sure that you got my favorite part. Did you talk about $35 for the wire fee that um, <laughs> Michael Cohen also you know put down? Because that's the important thing that he gets reimbursed on that. On a separate line item, no doubt. <laughs> I'm sorry I stepped on you. Uh, what were you going to say? So um, Matt Kelly wrote a really interesting article for uh, <clears throat> Navex's blog, Ethics and Compliance Matters. Uh, Matt writes for them in addition to uh, Radical Compliance and a variety of other sites. You want to tell us about that, Jay? Yeah. So uh, Matt decided to ask about, you know, why is there a tipping point now on personal misconduct and what's really kind of driven it? And he has um, a few ideas about why things are happening. Um, you know, in the past, there has not been the technology for people to speak up and for people to report. That's one issue. A second issue is that now the best interests of corporations uh, are more in line with being socially responsible. And we've seen different situations as of late with reputational damage, you know, Papa John's, um, Wells Fargo, VW. So we've got the change into doing the right thing. We've got the change into technology. And now stakeholders and shareholders are getting more involved in what's happening to people. So Matt kind of wraps it up and he says he has a, a very cogent analysis and uh this piece, which we uh, picked up uh, that he wrote last week on August 15th, really kind of crystallized his thoughts on why now. So I really uh, was uh, interested in this. And, you know, as, as always, Matt writes from a unique angle and um, uh, takes a really different approach. And the protecting the company part, I found uh, really interesting. And companies, Jay, seem to be waking up to the fact that uh, poor culture uh, really can lead to some, some significant reputational issues. And that uh, I think this is a positive step to move towards taking an assessment really of the entire culture, an entire cultural assessment, and making sure that there's institutional justice and fairness up and down the organization. So uh, I applaud this. I applaud Matt's uh, article and uh, look forward to uh, kind of where he may take this. Great. So next up, we have a, an interesting article from um, Paul Hodgson, and this is from Compliance Week. And Paul takes a look at what could potentially happen if, uh, as part of Brexit, that the UK does not come into agreement with uh, its exit from the EU and how you could uh, work things out in terms of tariffs in terms of uh, getting goods across the border. And, um, you know, basically uh, there are seven months out and people are still talking about it as a possibility. This means that people still have to think about whether or not Brexit is going to come through and how that affects VAT taxes, how that affects um, payments to get goods over the border. And some of the key issues that uh, businesses need to urgently review include 
delays in clearing goods through customs, additional costs as the relation to duties, cash flow impacts of the important uh, import that at 20% on purchases from EU suppliers, requirements for inspection of food and pharmaceutical products entering, leaving the UK and going in the EU. And there's a list of other key things to look at that came from a recent report. But um, one of the things that was really pointed out that could significantly uh, harm people's supply chains is you have a situation where there is a lot of uh, just-in-time production and something could leave uh, the EU, end up later on in the day in the UK and be part of a construction, uh, part of a uh, product that was being put together or part of a supply chain. And now if they don't have those relationships between the UK and EU, uh, it could really seriously put a crimp in how people have been doing business for the last several years. So there's um, a real lot to chew on in this article and we link to it in the show notes. So uh, we have an article from uh, Maurice Gilbert on uh, his Side Corporate Compliance uh, Insights in his series on uh, Connected Series, which is Q&A with thought leaders in the compliance space. And this uh, episode or issue is with Valerie Charles, Chief Strategy Officer at GAN Integrity. And if, if you've ever uh, visited with Valerie or you know Valerie, she's a pretty passionate woman. And that really comes through in her interview. She had a little bit uh, different uh, journey to GAN. She is practicing lawyer, has been a practicing CCO. So she's been out um, as the customer, uh, the uh, purchaser of these products, and uh, took that and went into the uh, the tech side of things. So I found that really interesting, her own journey. And um, I would commend you to, uh, to read this uh, article because uh, it really speaks to, I think, what Gann's trying to do. And, and as I said, Valerie's very passionate about uh, compliance and ethics. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, where this all may go for her and Gann. Yeah, this is this is a great series that uh, Maurice is doing, and uh, Valerie is a good friend, so it's it's a quick read, but she packs it with a lot of information. And Tom, as you said, uh, she really came to the technology side from a different place. She initially started off doing white collar investigations, and then when she found that the tools weren't in the marketplace, that started her journey to uh, get onto the vendor side and her current position with GAN. Um, Matt has been, uh, busy. So besides, uh, writing his Navix article, uh, he's got a piece on the best compliance shows on TV and you have countered, or at the same time you were thinking about film noir and how, uh, 2018's world's most ethical companies from Ethisphere, uh, relates to film noir or film noir. So, um, Tom, which one should we go into first? Should we do Matt or should we do your thing? So um, I think we should start with Matt because I think we're going to have some longer comments on uh, film noir. Um, uh, Matt is uh, wrote a really interesting piece and, and no doubt had a lot of fun doing it where he, he asked the question of whether some of the best representations of corporate compliance, business ethics, and regulatory issues from television. He's got a list of current TV shows. Uh, older TV shows and then uh, what may be coming out in the future. Um, just, you know, from everything you would expect, like billions and bad banks to uh, better 
Call Saul, my personal favorite, uh, Mr. Robot. Uh, I'm a huge Mr. Robot fan. Uh, Ozark suits and some of the older shows uh, as well and uh, what may be coming out any that really uh, struck you from his list or things that are your personal favorites jay well i had a guilty pleasure that he had on his list which was a show that ran for about three years on abc called uh, dirty sexy money and it was part you know falcon crest the carrington's but also, um, you know, lived kind of like in the, the high-flying uh, Trumpian world. So that's definitely worth a view. And uh, also, uh, when I was reading, I guess his blog, initial blog post got something like 28,000 views. So there were a lot of folks um, chiming in with their personal favorites. And it reminded me of a show that I watched um, earlier in the year that was on HBO called The Deuce. And it was about uh, 42nd Street in New York City and how the uh, – it was created by David Simon, who did Homicide Life on the Street. And he also did The Wire, which is one of my favorite shows ever on HBO. So uh, there's great TV out there, and I think uh, uh, Matt is going to follow this up and also take a look at uh, film down the line which kind of brings us to one of your and my passions, which is film noir. And uh, why don't you tell everybody why you like it so much, and uh, then we can uh, move into the next part of our discussion. So uh, it's, it's interesting in our pre-production uh, discussion uh, why we both love this genre so much. I was drawn to it, Jay, from the visual aspects, light and shadows, Um the, uh, the, use of, the use of shooting uh, camera shots through blinds, the kinds of shadows blinds can throw, the uh, ever-present and omnipotent cigarette smoke that seems to permeate every film noir. It was almost an added character. Um, so uh, I just love this genre from uh, from from a youngster and have uh, always uh, enjoyed it and uh, – but you have a, a really different reason for your uh, passion for it. Uh, well, as fans of the show know that I am a recovering screenwriter. So uh, there's a lot of things that I uh, tried to either borrow elements uh, from film noir and uh, projects that I worked on, or I just really liked uh, the mindset. And when Tom is talking about, you know, shadows being cast by blinds and things like that. You know, there's a whole visual language to film noir, and it's it's quite often that you'll find people who are literally barred in by their circumstances, and that happens with the aforementioned shadow and light. So uh, Tom and I, uh, I guess before we get away from the film noir – Tom wrote a great piece where he spoke to Erica Sim and uh, Byrne from Ethisphere. And uh, this year they've released, uh, as they've done for the last 11 years, uh, they've released their list of world's most ethical companies, WME. 
And what they're able to do is to figure out um, that there is an ethics premium and they look at the publicly traded companies who they have uh, awarded uh, WME status to. And you can see that there's actually a three-year ethics premium of 4.88%. And that's, um, you know, either compared to different indices or in the uh, article, Tom has a picture of the U.S. large cap index. So it kind of makes sense that companies that focus on um, ethics and compliance would perform better. But now uh, Ethisphere does have the actual raw data to confirm this. And if, you know, after as much stuff that's out there, if you don't think that it's worth investing in your ethics and compliance program, if you want to uh, get a return of almost 5% better for your shareholders' uh, money, that's probably a good reason to do it, if not for everything else. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I asked Jay, uh, so uh, I posted, of course, the Film Noir article on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, as of the recording of this podcast, we've got uh, literally over a thousand uh, hits on that podcast, uh, excuse me, on that blog post alone, and in addition to the uh, 2,500 or so on uh, JD Supra and another um, uh, 7,000 uh, subscribers who got it. So it's been a very popular blog post, Jay. And uh, as, as part of that popularity uh, and knowing Jay's great love for film noir, I thought it might be fun for both of us to, uh, to t- put down our top five. Now, this is our top five. Um, and, uh, we, uh, the only ground rules I set were, uh, it had to be black and white. Uh, other than that, um, if you, if you wanted to go international, you could do that. Uh, if you want to stay in the U S you could do that. My list is U S centric, but I thought it might be fun, Jay, if we sort of, uh, uh, swapped, uh, uh consecutive, uh, places. Uh, so we'd go through our numbers in that way. Uh, and I'm just going to introduce, uh, who was the, the major star or the director and, and why it was so uh, significant to me. And, and I'm happy to start. And my number one is DOA, um, uh, Raymond Massey. And it was about, um, a person who was poisoned. The opening scene is he walks into a police station. He says, I want to report a murder. And the cop says, who? And he says, mine. And uh, it was just a great uh, vignette of San Francisco in the late 40s, uh, jazz, booze, cigarettes, um, and uh, Massey working backwards to figure out who, uh, who poisoned him. What's number one on your list? Uh, number one on my list is Casablanca, 1942, directed by Michael Curtiz, written by Julius and Philip Epstein and Howard Koch. And... Uh, I just um, love the sensibility, the uh, the way Bogart is just so, uh, you know, so sarcastic. And uh, again, we have all the uh, accoutrements that come with film noir, the light, the shadow, people being trapped, uh, you know, at the end, uh, corruption and Vichy wins out when Rick and uh, Inspector, oh, what is his name? Uh, but anyhow, they, they they walk out and they say, I think this Captain could be Renault. The, Captain Renault. And said, Ricky, this is the start of a, a great friendship. So, um, you know, th- this is a movie that's one of the classic ones that, 
you know, it never had any pretensions. It was just another movie that was going to be made at Warner Brothers. It's really, um, you know, part of the studio system. And sometimes you hit magic, and that's one of the movies that I think really does. Uh, I'll go for my number two right now. And again, this is more uh, less about the crime and more about the advances and the technique. Uh, Citizen Kane, uh, Orson Welles' masterpiece, loosely or heavily based on the life of William Randolph Hearst. And, you know, from the opening scene when, uh, when Kane dies and lets the snow globe go by and says, uh, Buttercup, from there on, it just starts a Rosebud. mystery as Rosebud. Rosebud. Okay. Uh, buttercup so uh, that's my number two citizen kane what's yours tom so this number two is uh definitely not as well known uh it is the movie detour uh directed by edgar ulner uh 1944 um many people including myself say this was really the first film noir uh, there were precursors but uh they they point to this one as the first one uh it is just a harrowing uh, movie that scared the tar out of me. Uh, it's about a hitchhiker uh, who gets in a car and uh, it all goes downhill from there. And um, it was so bad, uh, uh, the, or rather the, the film was, was just so dramatic that uh, they had him getting away at the end and uh, the uh, Breen Committee, uh, uh, the censors, censorship board uh, made them put on an ending where he was actually arrested because they couldn't have him getting away uh, with the crimes he ended up being committed. So uh, it's a great, uh, great uh, B movie. Um, B movie means that they just had a lower budget. It does not mean less creativity uh, from any of the participants, but uh, that's my number two. My number three, Jay is um, murder. My sweet, which is based of course on Raymond Chandler's murder. My lovely, Uh um, and I really enjoyed Philip uh, Dick Powell as Philip Marlowe in this, um, uh, directed by uh, Edward uh, Dimitrik. And this one really used um, lots of uh, light and shadows, <clears throat> particularly shots, office shots with blinds that uh, really drew me to it. But uh, obviously, Humphrey Bogart as uh, Philip uh, Marlowe, uh, you can't go wrong. But here I enjoyed uh, Dick Powell. Number three for you. uh, I was just going to say what's interesting is up until that time, Dick Powell was known more as a song and dance man. So he was really um, a very interesting choice to play Marlowe. And then, as I recall, I believe there's a lot of point of view stuff where the uh, audience member is the camera. So I remember scenes. uh, That's Robert Taylor and Lady of the Lake. Oh, okay. Mixing up my Marlowe's. So, uh, on number three, uh, I will pick a classic, which uh, I would think it's got to hit somewhere in your list, uh, Double Indemnity. It's about uh, an insurance murder scam. Uh, Fred McMurray from My Three Sons being rather duplicitous and nasty. Um, am I right that it's Barbara Stanwyck, who's incredibly uh, enticing, and then Edward G. Robinson, who's the mentor to Fred McMurray from the insurance business. So uh, it's uh, written by one one of my favorite writer directors, uh, Billy Wilder. He'll come up again on my list. But uh, you know, double indemnity—it's just in, 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 identity. Is it a, ugh, double indemnity, right? 
is right. uh, just a great title for a movie. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it, it works just as good today as it did 60 years ago. Uh, number, number, four. number four, number four for me is a tie and you'll see a theme here. Uh, it's a tie between the third man, a 1949 movie with Joseph Cotton and, um, Orson Welles and then touch of evil 1958 by mm-hmm. Orson Welles starring a young Charlton Heston before planet of the apes and between 10 commandments and Ben Hur. And, um, you know, so you can see there with citizen being on my list third man carol redirected it but uh, i remember seeing that in uh vienna when i was in austria in the summer of 1987 they actually have the movie playing there because it takes place uh, a large part of it and then uh touch of evil is just really um malevolent story about uh, a big boss who uh runs things on the other side of the border in mexico and charlton heston is the young wet behind the ears uh sheriff who wants to make good so uh uh i don't think you can speak about uh film noir without speaking about orson wells great great selections and that uh, is interesting because my number four is shanghai lady also directed by orson wells uh star lady orson from wells. shanghai right yes and she uh he wrote it for his then wife rita hayworth and, oh my god uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, it was just a, a fabulous uh, movie, and uh, the hall of mirror scenes at the end uh, was uh, worth uh, the entire price of admission. So Wells definitely had uh, two very stout feet planted directly in um, noir, and I, and I cannot disagree with your selections uh, as well. The only reason I didn't put the third man was uh, I went to, uh, domestic. But uh, my number five, uh, you're absolutely right, Double Indemnity. So uh, directed by Billy Wilder, Fred McMurray. Uh, I'm currently listening, Jay, to a podcast series called Unspooled, which is uh, two uh, folks talking about the AFI 2006 Top 100 films. And uh, this past week they did Double Indemnity, and that's actually was the inspiration for my blog post and got me thinking about it. But uh, you, you cannot say enough great stuff about double indemnity uh, from the uh, murder scheme of the um, of uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck to murder Bob, Barbara Stanwyck's husband to uh, the duplicitousness of Fred McMurray to how he thought he was in control, but he was really being used the entire time by Barbara Stanwyck. Edward G. Robinson is the uh, insurance adjuster with a little man in his stomach. And uh, just uh, dialogue, screenwriting, uh, visual uh, feast for the eyes. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck plays this deliciously evil woman. And um, uh, Southern California in uh, the late 1940s, uh, a lot filmed on location. Uh, So you really get a sense and flavor of of L.A. before the truly explosion of growth in the 50s and early 60s. So uh, my number five is Double Indemnity. So my number five, also written and directed by Billy Wilder in 1950, is Sunset Boulevard. Mm. And uh, I always relate to this because uh, William Holden plays this down-on-his-luck writer who uh, takes one final stab at glory and ends up moving into a big mansion on Sunset Boulevard with this uh, retired former 
silent screen star. Uh, her name in the movie is Miss Norma Desmond, but she's played by Gloria Swanson, who was a big star in the 20s. And, um, you know, the, the convention, just like you talked about in DOA, that the guy shows up and says, uh, I want to report a murder. Uh, when we first see the protagonist of Sunset Boulevard, he's floating dead in a swimming pool in Norma Desmond's backyard. And we find out uh, throughout the movie how he got to the point where he was at. So um, if you look at both our lists, I think there's uh, a fondness for uh, Billy Wilder, who's one of the uh, premier writers working in Hollywood in the uh, late 30s, 40s and 50s. And then uh, Mr. Orson Welles figures significantly in my list. And uh, the, the ones that you picked out, I mean, great examples of you know, very hard-boiled detectives and uh, people who are unsavory. So I think uh, both lists are great. One thing I will offer that I came up with some uh, thematic film noir movies, but they're um, in color. So let me just uh, quickly give the titles and we can uh, post that. Uh, there was a director who started working in the early 90s named John Dahl. D-A-H-L, and he had a couple very hard-boiled movies in 1993, something called Red Rock West with Nicolas Cage and Dennis Hopper, and then the next year he followed it with a real sexy thriller called The Last Seduction with Linda Fiorentino, a scheme to rob an armored uh, car that goes awry, and then a movie that's just really broke some grounds in terms of editing and style, uh, Stephen Soderbergh called Out of Sight in 1998, George Clooney, and back then she was known as Jennifer Lopez, but J-Lo. Uh, one movie with Kevin Costner in 1987, directed by Ronald uh, Roger Donaldson, called No Way Out. And I still remember that my uh, middle sister Sharon saw the movie, and she was like in tears for a week because she was so thrown by the fact that the good guy played by Kevin Costner was a Russian spy. And then the last film noir, uh, which would be my number one, is uh, Roman Polanski's uh, 1975 uh, epic called Chinatown. So those are submitted for your, uh, for your consideration as color film noirs. So, Jay, we had a, a very good series this week with uh, Vin DeCiani and Eric Feldman, your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors, on uh, an ethical culture. Uh, we had a f five parts uh, on iTunes released all on Monday and on the FCPA compliance report list uh, released daily. On uh, Monday, we had what is an ethical culture. On Tuesday, what factors influence culture. On three, what's the role of the CCO in, in an ethical culture. On Thursday, yesterday, how a company assesses its culture. And today, uh, ethical culture is part of an ethics and compliance program assessment. Uh, anybody who didn't uh, check out the series, uh, please do so. You can download uh, all of the podcasts from uh, uh, Libsyn or iTunes and check it out. So uh, with that, Jay, uh, you want to take us home? Sure, I would love to. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA. Uh, we've taken a look at significant ethics and compliance uh, stories from across the sporting spectrum. And then we've also had an opportunity to talk about um, one of our favorite films, 
uh, types, which is film noir. So we uh, thank you as always for listening in and we wish you a safe and wonderful last weekend of the summer. Thanks a lot. Hello everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week where we wrap up next week's top ethics and compliance stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.